Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener. I've been using Scrivener since 2014, and I never looked back. It's an amazing tool for writers in that it lets you build research in the same document that you're doing your work. You can put in images and PDFs. You can organize your work using the corkboard view. You can set goals. You can export it to multiple formats, including ebook and manuscript. There's really nothing Scrivener can't do in the writing universe, and I highly recommend it, which is why I'm so pleased that they're a sponsor. If you'd like to check them out, you can follow the link from our website or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code STORYDISCOVERY at checkout. If you're a writer and you haven't tried Scrivener, I highly recommend it. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2022. All rights reserved. On today's show, you'll hear A Concert for the Elephants, written by Brad Buchanan and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. A Concert for Elephants, My Father's Miracle Cure by Brad Buchanan. I first sensed that something was wrong with my father in the summer of 2018, during our annual visit to my parents' lake house. He seemed preoccupied, vaguely anxious and mysterious in his movements. My own medical ordeal had me more sensitive to other states of being, or so I liked to think. But at the time, I only suspected that the ordinary effects of aging were at work, or at worst, the early symptoms of a slowly developing case of Alzheimer's disease, the illness that had afflicted his own father. Naturally, I wrote a poem that expressed my nebulous sense of apprehension where he was concerned. The poem begins as a concrete description focused on my own ongoing disability, but managed to find its way into an intuitive statement about my father's changed, even endangered state. The Given Way The mossy path down to the lake was partly washed away last week. Restored with rocks and dirt it bears the cringing, unpredictable weight of my descending footsteps, giving way under pressure, but not too fast, showing me to one lower ledge after another, a farther pace, deeper into the wilderness. This is the manner of my departure, from the airy that might have held me forever, aloof and safely away from the water, the catchment at the foot of this tower of brush and humus. A spiraling footprint dogs me, leading me where my father awaits me impatiently, having moved rivulets, mounds, 
and branches to fashion this soft, crumbling progress to cushion my fall. When it comes, long before, his own death on this trail, where he precedes me as if to intercept the first sniper's bullet, the long-promised trap. My father had painstakingly shored up the slippery path down from the cottage to the lake for my benefit, since I am still unsteady on my feet and easily off balance. Yet I felt that he was really the one in imminent peril. Maybe in caring for me, as he did along with Kate and my mother, during my protracted and traumatic illness, he had left himself vulnerable in some way. As it turned out, I was right. He soon plunged into a state of obvious paranoid depression that robbed him of all his former enjoyments and energy. A psychiatrist diagnosed him with depression, as well as a case of vascular dementia. His brain has apparently shrunk somewhat, though not abnormally for someone of his age. My visit to my parents in October seemed to confirm this gloomy prognosis, and I wrote a teary-eyed poem about our uncomfortable parting at the Ottawa airport. Dystrophian Slowly taking leave of his senses, my father lingers awkwardly after the hugs and kisses goodbye, uncertain whether he needs to stay longer to see me, safely off on my journey back to sanity. Or if he should carry my bag one last time to remind him of my recovery, stave off the irrecoverable loss he already feels inside, that once distinguished, atrophied brain, deciding not, he shrinks away, still further, recedes inconsolably from his own shaken faith in reality. His grasp of the obvious, loosened but numbingly sudden, he disappears inside the shell of himself. I want to return and rescue the man I knew from this valetudinarian victim. Bring him along with me into an uncertain future, but out of the clutches of mindless vascular dystrophy. It turned out, however, that this dire prognosis was mistaken. A new team of doctors at the Royal Ottawa Hospital, a top-notch facility to which he was given access shortly after my October visit, switched his medications, and advised a course of electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. I was initially horrified by this recommendation. My mind produced images of him being given violent shock treatments that would rack his already suffering body still further. My mother, however, urged me to educate myself about the reality of ECT, which has indeed been refined and made far more humane, even gentle, since its early days when it was used rather indiscriminately and excessively. The news that my father would shortly undergo ECT coincided with my discovery of a documentary called Music for Elephants, 
which featured a concert pianist who had essentially chucked his career to go to Thailand and play music as a form of therapy for the abused and injured elephants on a preserve. This coincidence was too great for me to ignore, and I set myself a task to write a poem about this quixotic pianist that also touched on my father's plight. A Concert for the Elephants Blinded by years of forced labor in the forest, this bull elephant begged in the street after loggers drove him through twigs that ripped his ears and poked his eyes until they gave out. He listens to Beethoven and ragtime with his trunk tucked into his mouth and forgets to eat until the piano suite is done. My father lies still as they send a gentle, electrical current through his temples. He is unconscious, perfectly comfortable, even while the convulsions last. He has consented to this, depressed and paranoid though he is. The three expensive CDs of soothing music that I sent him did nothing at first but keep him worrying that they would somehow be stolen. I had tried to get my father interested in the same EMDR music that I have found so soothing, but it was only a pretext for more paranoia on his part. I saw parallels between his refractory state and that of the bull elephant who sometimes smashed the piano to pieces. His tusks cut off and his cheeks imploded. With infection, he picks up a hammer and bangs out tunes on the xylophone. Enraged and in must, he pounds the piano until the ivory keys cave in. He has shrunk so much that they could hear, an alarming pulse in his abdomen. The peace that finally allows him an hour of respite from his deep discomfiture features the sounds of rustling grass, chirping insects, and rushing water. My father did finally give one of the CDs I bought for him a chance. And it did, in fact, produce an effect. He managed to while away part of one afternoon with a nap. I knew that this musical therapy was not a proper solution to his problems. However, though I tried to conjure up a scenario where a single work of art might help both of these suffering creatures, perhaps these two will cross one another on their separate ways to greater serenity. Perhaps some as yet unknown composer, will find the music to heal my father in a lightning burst of creative energy that frees the elephants from their captivity. This was indeed fanciful, but it helped me to reconcile myself to the treatment my father needed, which was another kind of current flowing through his brain. Not music, but an electrical impulse that would, as if by magic, rewire his neurons and synapses and free him from the bondage of his depression. As I write this, my parents are driving to the Sacramento airport from our home, where they have just been visiting us for a week. My father, after only eight sessions of ECT, lasting around three weeks, has been completely transformed. His depression is gone without a trace, 
and he has recovered the enthusiasm for life that typified him until a year or so ago. To say he has been rejuvenated is tempting, but he is too grateful for this amazing recovery to be called truly young at heart. He claims he is the wiser for his close encounter with utter desolation, and I believe him. He doesn't want to forget about his blue period, but rather to talk about it, to write about it, to share his story with others facing similar challenges. He has been given a new lease on life and is determined to take his once bitter lemons and make sweet lemonade out of them. I know just how he feels. You've just listened to A Concert for the Elephants, My Father's Miracle Cure, written by Brad Buchanan. And we have Brad on the show today to talk about this amazing piece and give us some insight into his poetry and narrative creativity. On the show today, we also have co-host Melissa Collings. Welcome, Melissa. Hello. And, of course, Brad. Welcome, Brad. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on. Yes. With that, we do like to start off by having you tell the audience a little bit about yourself. So tell us what you want us to know. Okay. Um, well, um, I'm a, now a full-time writer and a poet. I used to teach English at uh, Sac State, Sacramento State University. Uh, but I had to retire early because of a catastrophic illness. Mm-hmm. I've had two types of blood cancer. Um, and, uh, had a stem cell transplant in 2016, which also, um, threatened my life. And I currently have a, uh, chronic medical issue, a disease called graft versus host disease, which is the consequence of the stem cell transplant. Um, so anyway, I have turned to writing about illness, uh, a great deal in recent years for obvious reasons. Yeah. Uh, I found that writing was a tool to help process ongoing medical challenges, to work with the language that was given to me as a result of, you know, being a cancer patient and a stem cell transplant recipient. uh, I had to learn a whole new set of jargon. I thought I had a good vocabulary as an English professor. Mm-hmm. But I realized that I had no idea often what they were talking about when they yeah. would tell me, oh, well, here are your differential diagnoses. Yeah. And I was like, what the heck does that mean? Mm-hmm. So I ended up writing a poem called The Differential Diagnoses before I was actually diagnosed with my first type wow. of uh, lymphoma. So anyway, um, I've written about my medical uh, condition for the past uh, six years or so. Um, I should say conditions plural because they've changed. Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I styled myself a, you know, a cancer, uh, warrior, like many people in the cancer community do that we're fighting yeah. a battle against cancer, standing up to cancer. That's right. Beating cancer. Um, and that served me pretty well when I was in active treatment. And going in for my stem cell transplant, which was a life altering event one way or the other right uh, because what happens to you in this type of transplant is they basically give you so much chemo and such intensive radiation that you need to get 
someone else's immune system in your body or else you will simply not survive at all. Hmm. Fortunately, my brother was a perfect donor, uh, according oh, wow. to the metrics. Yeah. According to the metrics, he was a 10 out of 10 match for me. Um, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. On, on paper, it, it was wonderful in practice. However, um, the no. transplant went kind of mm. sideways and, um, the new immune system did its job of, you know, fighting the cancer, of course, but then it started attacking my body. Yeah. Um, and it did so in weird ways that people didn't quite understand at the time. Uh, mm. so for instance, I went blind, um, oh my within, goodness. within a couple of weeks of getting the, uh, new stem cells in my body. And they were very confused. This is not supposed to be a symptom of acute graft versus host disease, uh, but it certainly was. It took a long time for them to recognize it and an even longer time for anyone to know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. uh, as it happened, they just, uh, sort of had to kind of control the damage, um, that, uh, my ocular GDHD was doing to my eyes. And eventually I had two corneal transplants, one in each eye to restore something like normal vision. And since then I've had, uh, uh cataract surgery. So today my wow. vision is excellent. Um, that's a great outcome. Yes. Yeah, it, it is a great outcome. However, I, yeah, it was weird to <laughs> say it mildly. Um, <laughs> I was what was known in my medical circles as a zebra. Yeah. The analogy with horses is, you know, the doctors are trained to look for certain breeds of horses, like certain right. breeds of normal illness. And my illnesses never seem to fit into those clean, easy categories. Right. They always tell you in the medical field, I'm, I'm a physician assistant. And so they tell you, don't look for the zebra. You know, it's like right. they, <laughs> they tell you it's, it's, it's usually not the zebra. So you have to right. be prepared for it. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So you are one of those rare, rare yeah. cases. And they didn't know quite what to do with you. That's not a thing you want to hear as a patient. No, it's not really. But mm. eventually, yeah, they started, my initial lymphoma was so unusual. They ended up just calling it Brad's lymphoma because it wow. went into this category of non-Hodgkin's subcutaneous-like lymphoma, not otherwise specified. Wow. So wow. it was just simpler to call it Brad's lymphoma. Um, <laughs> And anyway, I had Brad's GBHD apparently too, where the sudden blindness just uh, hammered me at the same time as I was also experiencing a lot of other very unpleasant symptoms of acute GBHD, oh which, which almost uh, killed me straight up. So anyway, I've had to wrestle with a lot of medical complications. And so, um, when my father was experiencing very strange symptoms of what we thought was dementia, I felt like I needed to get involved to try to sort out some of the weird things that were happening and the fact that he wasn't getting adequately treated in my estimation. Wow. That is a fascinating story. And I can't imagine the emotional roller coaster you went on through that. I mean, for just the blindness alone, <laughs> not even with everything else, is such yeah. a scary thing. I can't, um, I mean, I don't think most of us can have, have that point of view, you know, that life experience. So it's just, it's amazing that you can tell that story. Yeah. 
when honestly, I still feel like I was kind of in denial about my blindness. Um, I didn't learn many adaptive skills. Like I certainly didn't learn any braille. Um, I finally, uh, learned to walk around with a white cane, but, wow. uh, for a, a long time, I was too sick to even get out of the house. Yeah. Uh, when they finally sent me home, I was in such bad shape still that it took quite a few weeks before I you know, was able to move around, go outside and find my way in the world. So I still feel like my blindness, though it's over, it still has things to teach me. Um, mm -hmm. so I facilitate a writing workshop with the blind people, uh, uh through wow. zoom, which has turned out to be very successful. Um, which, you know, I tried to do it in person, but it wasn't working very well because yeah. uh, they all use different technologies to write with. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was much better to just have them at home with their devices so that we could all meet through zoom and we could share our words. However, they were being produced. Wow. Um, yeah, so anyway, that uh, is. but yeah, I, I like to tell my workshop participants that they're still teaching me about my own blindness, which I kind of was denying in a way when it was actually a reality in my life. Right. Fascinating, Brad. It is fascinating and so touching. I mean, how Thank do you, you go on from that? My goodness. Yeah. Well, you talking about your father and you having the medical background and everything that you went through, I'm sure that that sparked some fears, you know, wondering, you know, what is he, what's going on with him and, yeah. and everything like that. And so that's what prompted you to write this poem slash story, right? Can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that and how yeah. these words came to be on the page? Sure. Well, when he was having these difficulties, I went back to visit him in Canada, which is where I grew up. Uh, I went back twice. The first time was just sort of like to figure out what on earth was happening. Because mm. my mother, my mother was, you know, getting frustrated yeah. with dealing with the Canadian medical bureaucracy, which in some ways is excellent because everyone gets a certain basic level of care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But like every bureaucracy, it is a system that has cracks that people can fall through. And my, I felt like my father was falling through the cracks. Um, mm -hmm. And he was diagnosed with dementia or... Um, and there's also Alzheimer's on uh, his side of the family. So I was very concerned that my father was actually, you know, entering into sort of a, a, a terminal kind of mental illness, let's say, um, wow. that needed immediate intervention. Yeah. And none of the drugs they were prescribing for him were doing anything. And in fact, he was convinced that it was the drugs that they were giving him to combat his depression that were making his situation worse. Mm -hmm. He was, he was experiencing very strange, like paranoid delusions. Um, he thought the Russians were, uh, spying on our family. Um, anyway, he, he was just in such lousy shape that I, I, I went and visited him. I tried to like get some sense of what was happening. And then I ended up making some phone calls to people who I thought were the appropriate doctors to look at him because his regular psychologist was semi-retired and was sort of had one foot out the door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I felt strongly that he needed to be seen by someone new. Yeah. Someone who spe specialized in geriatric psychiatry. 
Nice. And so I rattled some cages. I played my, you know, angry son <laughs> uh, <laughs> card. Um, I, in fact, what I did was I, I adapted some of my wife's strategies when she was my healthcare advocate. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. And because she was willing to get mad at people and say, Good. this is un right. unacceptable. Yeah. And I did the same. So I, I kind of took a page from her book. She Bravo. saved, my, she saved my life a couple of times, more than a couple mm -hmm. in my estimation. Anyway, with her advocacy when I was, you know, when I was being my zebra self yeah, and the doctors were slow to diagnose, slow to yeah. treat, slow to understand, whatever. So anyway, I wrote one of the poems about his dementia, uh, as I was leaving Canada, you know, he gave me this hug and a kiss goodbye. And, you know, I look back at him as after we parted and I was like, this man is lost. Like he is, he is totally at sea in the world. He's lost his mm. mind basically, which is the most, he was a scientist. Well, he still is a, he's still alive. He's, he's very much still a, a scientist by training and by nature. Um, mm. but, but his mental capacity had been so dramatically altered that wow. I felt like I was already writing in his elegy. Wow. Mm. But is that one of these pieces? Yeah. 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 And then, um, however, uh, over the next couple of months, things started to change dramatically and he was in, admitted to the Royal Ottawa hospital, which is the best institution in the country, basically. And it's in the same city where my parents were living. So it was ideal from every point mm -hmm. of view. As a result of my, I think as a result of my belly aching, he got on the waiting list to get in there. And I mean, it's a bit of dark humor, but uh, I, I would tell people, well, when you get on a waiting list with geriatric psychiatrists, the waiting list tends to move quickly. Mm, um, yeah. You know, anyway, so before very long, he was in their system and the experts took one look at him and said, oh yeah, this guy, we can't do anything with this guy with drugs. He needs electroconvulsive therapy, i.e. Wow. Sh shock therapy, mm -hmm. which was itself shocking to hear. I didn't yeah. know they were doing that anymore to human right. beings. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's disturbing to watch. Well, certainly the, like the sensationalistic video representations of what that looks like or movie representations yeah. are awful. Yeah. However, I learned quickly, my mother gave me a little tutorial and said, Hey, don't overreact. Yeah. Look at this. There was a talk by a former patient uh, who was himself a scientist. So kind of a man exactly like my father, really. Talking about how ECT had uh, turned his uh, life around completely. Wow. Um, and it's a much gentler process. Um, yeah. And mm -hmm. it's often done when the patient is asleep even. Mm -hmm. And there's none of the jerking around and like, you know, violence of the early heroic age of shock treatment. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And anyway, it, uh, so that's what motivated me to write a concert for the elephants. Uh, I cause like I, it. I paid a second visit to him uh, and I brought him this, uh, CD of, of music that I thought was going to soothe him. And of course he just worried that it would get stolen in the hospital. Yeah. Aww. So he couldn't handle it, uh, at all, but he ended up, you know, he ended up getting completely rejuvenated and, and reset, so to speak, rebooted by the ECT. 
And then I, and then I watched this amazing documentary on YouTube about this concert pianist who had left his career basically to work in, I think it was Thailand at this reserve for these kind of injured, um, retired elephants, you might call them and play the piano for them. Uh, <laughs> and apparently they find it soothing and they like it. Yeah. Um, that's so cute. Anyway. So in my mind, like somehow these two things they made came together. sense together. Yeah, exactly. They made sense together. And I, it was, I wrote the poem just before they started the ECT treatments for my father. Wow. And, um, yeah. And I just thought, you know, these, I wrote the poem separately at first, mm -hmm. but then I realized, you know, the poems themselves don't really capture the full story Yeah, mm -hmm. because it was such a remarkable story of his, you know, initial strange condition. Yeah. And then the period of uncertainty about what was really wrong, the hitting upon the treatment and finally the cure. Yeah. Mm, which was almost annoying in some ways in its rapidity, you know, because yeah. I've had to deal with the aftermath of my cures from cancer, uh, which were rather painful, but he became rejuvenated really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, so it is, a, it, to me, it does kind of seem like a bit of a miracle cure Yeah, that, mm -hmm. you know, someone has figured out that uh, stimulating the brain with electricity alters the circuits somehow rewires the brain. Yeah. Um, which it did for my father. So anyway, I felt like the poems were the starting point, but they needed to be knit together in a, yeah. in a bigger narrative. They kind of explained the whole situation from start to finish. Yeah. So have you done anything like this before where you have some narrative kind of interwoven with poetry? Uh, yeah, for sure. That kind of writing is, is present in the most recent book that I published, uh, mm -hmm. called living with graft versus host disease, um, yeah. how I stopped fighting cancer and started healing. So yeah, the piece, a concert for the elephants, I actually wrote as I was writing the rest of that book, um, mm -hmm. yeah. because that book also interweaves poetry and narrative because I use poetry, my own and other people's as kind of, um, resources when I was very stressed out from my yeah. treatments or worried about the future. Yeah. When I was sitting in a room by myself in the dark, waiting for them to, you know, do a, a scan or something like that, I would recite poems to myself. Oh. Um, and, uh, it was a way of kind of trying to get my mind, um, off what was actually happening to me. Yeah, sure. So anyway, yeah, I, I did a lot of that kind of writing, um, for that book, but that chapter didn't fit ultimately in the book itself. Cause it's, yeah. the book is about graft versus host disease. It's about me. Yeah. Um, and this piece was about my father, but yeah, I, I sort of hit upon the formula of combining personal narrative and poetry as a way of, uh. I don't know, trying to, you know, bring the two kinds of writing that I like to do together, you yeah. know, po mm -hmm. poetry mm -hmm. on the one hand, which to me is the most pleasurable form of writing that I know, Yeah. but also prose narrative, which I've done for many years as an academic, you know, writing scholarly articles about Shakespeare or whatever. Um, yeah. but, uh, putting the two of them together to me felt totally normal, even though 
it's a very unconventional way of writing. And I'm really gratified you guys sort of recognize something of value there. Yeah. Because for me, it often felt like, oh, I'm just indulging myself. I'm treating my (laughs) own, I'm just treating my own poetry as like the primary source for this essay, you know, as if I was good as somebody, you know, uh, like James Joyce or whoever I would (laughs) otherwise be writing literary criticism about. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. But, but it's gratifying to hear that it landed uh, somewhere Mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. Um, and other pieces are also landing too. pieces that have nothing to do with graft versus host disease. Um, yeah. but anyway, yeah, sure. Well, I, I was just struck by its, um, not its originality so much as its sort of truthfulness. I don't know how to say it otherwise yeah. when I read it, it just felt right. And I really like the way you put those two things together to kind of help guide the reader through the experience. And it gives you a better understanding, a deeper understanding of the meaning behind the poetry. And of course, poetry is always subjective in general, you know, but this helps kind of, you know, if you're going down a river, this guides you, mm-hmm. you know, in yeah. a particular current or something would be the way I would yeah, say that maybe. Yeah, that's nice. That's so. a nice way to describe it. I yeah. agree. I think it's really neat how you put these two methods together into a story. I really like yeah. it. And it, I mean... And getting to hear the story behind it, I mean, a lot of it's on the page, you know, you get to see a lot of it develop on the page, but, you know, hearing everything that you've gone through and just makes the piece even stronger and it's very affecting, you know, it it affects you. And I have to say bravo to you and your wife for being your own medical advocate. I think that is so important and it kind of goes off of the writing for a second, but um, it's part of it, what you're writing about. You really have to do that. I don't think a lot of patients realize that they are in charge of their medical care. And then you have to look at it as you're in charge of your, you are with yourself all the time. And I'll have to be careful because I'll get on my medical pedestal. I'm very passionate Mm -hmm. about medicine Mm -hmm. and and everything. Mm -hmm. But um, that's so important to, to make sure you understand your condition and you help guide the doctor because the doctor has a bunch of other patients and you only have you. So, you know, you've got, or, you know, your family, if you're taking care of your family. So I think that's so important. And so I um, commend you for that. And I think that, you know, that's, as you said, you know, your wife saved you and, and uh, putting your foot down and doing that is amazing. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, Melissa. Um, I, I would echo what you just said also, and I've been doing some reading and speaking, thinking about a concept called narrative medicine. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a an excellent book by Rita Charon, uh, who's a doctor who uses that term to basically describe the process whereby doctors listen to the stories their patients are telling them. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it put it does put the onus on the patient to like express their truth, right. ver- verbalize things, but it also puts responsibility on the doctor too, to simply yeah. say, to, to say, well, look, you're not just dealing with a set of symptoms or figures or charts. You're dealing right. with a person yes. who you need to listen to yes. and mm-hmm. you need to listen for the things even that they're not saying. Right. But listen to the arc of the narrative that their symptoms, their words, their actions 
Um, you know, the actions of those around them, um, the whole picture adds up to a story and you need to listen to that story and you need to read it properly. In some cases, (laughs) read between the lines because not everyone is, Mm -hmm. not everyone is articulate or, um, that's what I was going to say. There are a lot of patients out there that are not good storytellers and they give you a whole lot of information that you do not need to know. (laughs) And that, and that, um, yeah. That makes it hard, you know, you, you yeah. have patient advocate and then physician side too, you have that. It's really hard when patients don't know what to put out there. So it's something else the patient has to think about. When you go yeah. into that 15 minute appointment, yeah. don't talk about your dog, you know, <laughs> get, get to the meat of, unless yes. your dog has something to do with your disease. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. and oftentimes though, um, you know, and the reason I wrote my book on uh, GVHD I think a lot of times patients just simply feel like, well, no one's going to understand what I'm going through. Like, yeah, it's so mm-hmm. weird. Like mm-hmm. the disease I currently have, graft versus host, it is an artificial disease. It's like nothing else. And it affects everyone a little differently. It alters your genetic makeup. Your actual DNA is different as a result. It's wild. And, and yeah, it is wild. It's a, you know, a mind, you know, what... <laughs> to start with, uh, and, um, but it's also very hard to explain sometimes, like my body just feels like it's been put together incorrectly, you know, like you're Frankenstein's monster, but mm-hmm. you don't know what to do about that. And it's possible yeah. to seek all kinds of pain medications or whatever that would numb some of the pain, but also you incur risks of, of course, opioid abuse, um, addiction of all sorts. But what I think what really people with my particular current condition need the most is simply, you know, other narratives that they can identify with, resonate with to some extent and say, yeah, that's sort of like what I'm going through. And maybe there's hope I can get to a better place myself because I've definitely gotten to a far better place. You know, my chronic illness is vastly preferable to my acute illness. Yeah. Right. And every day I feel like I'm finding new ways of sort of recovering. And uh, mm. although it's been more than six years now since yeah. my transplant, but I'm still recovering. I'm still finding ways that my body needs to get better and can get better. Um, and medications that you wean yourself off of gradually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all for you. new hurdles. I'm still on a bunch of them, but I've kicked uh, prednisone, for instance. Nice. Mm. Which is such a, you know, a powerful drug. It certainly saved my life, you know, mm-hmm. multiple times. But yeah. in the end, um, it was better to get off of it. And right. not least, yeah, not least yeah. because of, I think, the COVID situation. A lot of people yeah. on pred- prednisone don't have antibodies from their vaccines. Right. But I do. I have... Yeah antibodies um i think um my private theory is because i get off the prednisone anyway yeah yeah and so, for those for those who may not know what prednisone is it is a steroid, steroid. medication ultimate anti-inflammatory so that's not like the steroids you, you take to bulk right. up for anything but medical reasons mm-hmm. medical steroids for inflammation yeah, yeah exactly Great. well let's just switch gears a little bit and because We've already 20 minutes in or so. Um, so you, in your background materials, and I guess in your bio too, I think you mentioned that you've been a 
that your work has appeared in over 200 journals, which is just an amazing accomplishment. It and is I amazing. I applaud you for that as well. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how, you know, how did you do that or what's your process for writing and kind of getting that to happen besides being good? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, I just, the main thing that I write uh, is poetry. Mm-hmm. And um, so getting a poem published is fairly, I mean, it's relatively straightforward. You know, there are so many journals that publish poetry. Uh, the main thing is to get off your butt and start submitting things. Yeah. yeah. And my process has changed a lot over the years. Like um, I started submitting things when I was in grad school. Okay. And my wife at the time just got tired of me whining that I'll never get my poems published. And she just <laughs> said, well, buddy, you're not submitting them. So yeah, you, good point. <laughs> what do you expect? So anyway, I, yeah, I, I bought Poets Market, you know, the book, um, mm-hmm. and I uh, just started Was circling. that like Writer's Market? I assume I haven't heard of that one, but I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it's the same company that same, publishes yeah, okay. Writer's Market, exactly, but it's for poets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I needed at, at the time. And so I just started submitting everything to one place or another and uh you know whatever 20 plus years later i've had you know i've amassed a a a few acceptances for sure quite the resume quite the resume 200 (laughs) yeah that's amazing i love it but you know the story behind that is and i love your wife already (laughs) just these little bits you you've said i think she's fabulous but you, you were dedicated and, you know, that phrase, get off your butt and do something. I think we can all hear that is it's possible, right? It's possible for somebody, but you have to go after it. You yeah. have to go after the thing that you want and you can't sit around think, waiting for it to come yeah. to you in some cases. Some things do come, you know, they, they do come. And sometimes, you know, you have to kind of wait and not be stressed. But ultimately, you know, <laughs> you have to go go after what you want. Yeah. yeah. Well, and since you are, you know, high on my wife, I will also brag about her <laughs> uh, because she published a book about the experience of being my caregiver. Ooh. That is awesome. Yeah. Last Tell us year, about this book. Yeah. It's called Already Toast, Caregiving and Burnout in America. Ooh. And um, she, I, I don't want to say too much about it. The title sort of says it all in some ways. Mm-hmm. But basically, she was really put through the ringer because of my unusual sort of medical roller coaster ride. Even to get to the stem cell transplant was already kind of exhausting and uh, sure, very challenging for her uh, because, you know, it just seemed like I was going to die more mm. than once. And then yeah. after the transplant, um, they sent me home in terrible, terrible shape. Uh, they told her that I needed 24 seven supervision. I could not be left alone. And she was going to have to perform Well, at various times. She had to perform nurse like functions, you know, Mm -hmm. inject, injecting me with antibiotics at one point, feeding me through what's called TPN, uh, a a feeding tube. Basically it went into my heart, uh, through a vein because I couldn't eat. Uh, and that was how they sent me home. Oh my goodness. And she recognized just how much the American healthcare, um, industry depends on unpaid caregiving, largely (laughs) done, largely done by women, uh, often by women of color. And uh, anyway, her name's Kate Washington. So I'll just, okay. I'm writing that Um, down. I will, I, I give her a plug every Every chance I get, I mean, firstly, because it's a great book, 
Um, but also because, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's my wife and, um, <laughs> she's a fantastic writer as well. So oh, cool. Tell her to submit something. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, she's still really busy. Her book has been very successful. She's done editorials in New York times. Wow. Um, has gotten into time magazine. That's awesome. As well. I mean, she's really furthered the discourse on caregiving in this country in a pretty significant way. So she is still kind of on the circuit giving talks about her book, uh, nice. as she should. I love that. I'm a fan. I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, me too. That's <laughs> uh, what you should be. Well, yeah. I mean, you know. No, I'm very proud mm -hmm. of her. The, and, and our books kind of like, our books tell similar stories in a way but from yeah. two very different points of view they complement totally. one another mm -hmm. yeah and it, you know awesome. if, if if you look up my book on amazon you know living with graft versus host disease you'll see at the bottom people who bought this book also bought yeah, <laughs> yeah. already toast <laughs> by kate washington so like wow, that's great yeah i'm i'm my ultimate goal is for us both to be on fresh air with terry gross <laughs> I don't think that's oh, going that's to happen. Terrific. I don't think that's going to happen, but it's nice to dream hey, about that. It's just like some men's stories. You just need to reach out to them. You do, yeah. You've got a great story to tell. It wouldn't surprise me. But if you do get on it, please let us know so we can listen in. I listen to NPR all the time. So, yeah. <laughs> yep, yeah. You have to go I, after what you want, and nothing I is impossible. Sure. Yeah. That's great. Well, hey, uh, so is um, your wife then your, your first reader? Do you, she, do you have a first reader? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah do you I've, read each other's books? Yeah, I showed her my book. Uh, I certainly read multiple drafts of her book. And there are some things I will say that we have kind of agreed to disagree about. Oh, mm. interesting. You know, like we have different takes on some of the stuff that happened when I was in the bone marrow transplant unit. Yeah. Interesting. Um, there was one day where a guy came in. He was my charge nurse and he and I were buddies throughout my cancer treatments. Um, and he came in one day and said, uh, hey, Brad, you beat cancer. You're fully engrafted. Oh. Which for me was great to hear because I was in terrible shape at the time. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least one thing had gone right, you know, with this transplant yeah, sure. that was. You kind of latch onto that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, well, okay, at least it's worked. You yes. know, the cancer is not going to come back. I have a chance of surviving because if, if my if my new immune system had not been fully engrafted in my body, that would have been the end of me, plain and simple. Right. Mm -hmm. However, actually, my wife and my parents both kind of felt like he was declaring victory at exactly the worst moment, you know, because I was still incredibly sick mm -hmm. and uh, giving me that false hope <clears throat> in a way, although it was technically true that I had, you know, beaten cancer. That language just, and you know, now that I think back on it, they were kind of right that the language of beating cancer was inappropriate hmm. because, and I've come to believe that actually that whole language of, of warrior, the warrior mentality that really dominates cancer discourse is totally unsuited to the graft versus host disease community. Mm -hmm. Um, like I cannot beat GVHD. It's not like something I can kill in my body. Yeah. It's right. something I have to live with. It's actually part of my genetic makeup. Yeah. And that has entailed a whole transformation of my mindset from the sort imagine. of like fighting, you know, fight, uh, yeah. flight, a flight or freeze, um, mentality to connecting with the parasympathetic 
nervous system that governs things like laughing, crying, making love, you know, like restorative activities mm -hmm. that you can't do when you're fighting, fighting, fighting against cancer or, mm -hmm. you know, congratulating yourself even for having beaten cancer. Um, because mm -hmm. as, as it happened, I hadn't beaten cancer. I got a second type of lymphoma as a result of my immune compromised state that, yeah. that, uh, was again, that they told me I had about a year to live with that second type of lymphoma. Oh my goodness. Fortunately, they were wrong again. <laughs> uh, and I found a treatment through a clinical trial in New York, which my wife again, you know, set me up for and helped to orchestrate. So, so yeah, I owe her a tremendous debt of gratitude. And even though, yeah, like when, when I think about that moment in the BMTU, when, uh, the chargers came in and, and said that to me, like in that moment, I was, I was happy. I was grateful to him, you know, yeah, I just, I, I trusted him, you know, right. and he, I regarded him as a friend and. And he gave me a little boost, you know, even. Well, yeah, hope is not something to discount, you know. No, I mean, right. someone hope or, I don't know this, but it feels like your body can respond positively to that, so. Yeah. I mean, in the moment, yeah, yeah in the moment yeah. I certainly did, yeah. It's all yeah. about the perspective and everybody's in a different place and they take the same words and they hear them differently. Yeah. And, and it's, it's amazing. Well, that is, yep. it's a fascinating experience. You are meant to be here because <laughs> of, I mean, all the obstacles that you have overcome. And it's very, it's enlightening that this, your story is being shared and, and not all of us know that, but it's also very um, touching. You know, it, it's, it's touching and it's amazing. And it gives other people strength to know that you can overcome and you can share your message and you share it through writing and writing has helped you so much and it's amazing. And so I'm really, I'm just, I'm in awe of everything that you've said. It's powerful. Well, and everything you've accomplished as a result. I mean, you yeah. can think of it that way too. So I think uh, that's terrific. Good motivation. Well, we are already over time here and sometimes we go a little long, so that is okay. <laughs> but I'm going to change up this question. Normally at the end of the show, we ask folks to share some writing advice um, to new writers or, you know, listeners that are just curious. Um, so you can still, of course, share that if you'd like, or if you want to share something related to surviving a condition like yours or working through the, our medical system as broken as it is, um, you know, either or you can uh, respond to as our closeout question. <laughs> or, or like your story, you can tie them both together. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I do have something to share um, that does kind of tie things together. Um, I do a lot of online writing workshops for both through the Sacramento Society for the Blind and through the UC Davis Cancer Center. And the workshopping method uh, promotes the idea that writing is itself a healing, a self-healing activity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the method that we use, it's called the Amherst Writers and Artists Method, where we only give each other positive feedback. And so I would encourage anyone uh, who's going through anything difficult or recovering from anything difficult to simply write. Find a supportive mm -hmm. writing community um, if you can, or, you know, find a workshop that uses this method, um, as a way to, to, uh, basically use your own words to retell your own story 
to understand it better, first of all, and uh, mm-hmm. to gain some control over the, the emotional fallout from whatever challenges you may be experiencing. Um, that's, that's the final message, I guess, I, I always want to share is that writing is a therapeutic activity in whatever form it takes. It doesn't have to be publishable. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. And I love the fact that you said, you know, you can't control your disease. There's nothing you can do about what's happened to you. Yeah. But the thing that you can control is your response to it and your emotions. And to some, de- to some degree, sometimes it's hard to control those. But you can control yourself and how you respond. And I think that's, I think that's lovely. And having writing as a part of that is also very lovely. And so thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Brad. Thanks for submitting the work. I'm so happy to be sharing it with the world here and uh, look forward to seeing, I guess, when maybe you get to 400, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, next time we see you, 400. Exactly. Right, right. Or yeah. I'll listen to you on NPR with uh, Fresh Air. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. It's really been a pleasure talking to you both. Same. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash onyx publications as a nano publishing house we are always looking for new works to showcase if you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration please visit the submissions page on our website in the meantime keep reading and writing